welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Friday, April 26, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Biden's apology to Anita Hill falls flat. The candidates speak to women of color at the She the People Forum. And is Stacey Abrams running for president or the Senate or anything? Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Just after announcing his bid for president yesterday, Joe Biden's campaign revealed that he had called Professor Anita Hill a few weeks back. The campaign said that Biden attempted to express, quote, his regret for what she endured, end quote, during the confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas nearly three decades ago. Biden's phone call did not go well. In a New York Times article, Cheryl Gay Stolberg and Carl Hulse detail what happened, often quoting Hill directly. Reading from the article, quote, In a lengthy telephone interview on Wednesday, she declined to characterize Mr. Biden's words to her as an apology and said she was not convinced that he has taken full responsibility for his conduct at the hearings or for the harm he has caused other victims of sexual harassment and gender violence. She said she views Mr. Biden as having set the stage for last year's confirmation of Justice Brett M. Kavanaugh, who, like Justice Thomas, was elevated to the court despite accusations against him that he had acted inappropriately toward women. And, she added, she was troubled by the recent accounts of women who say Mr. Biden touched them in ways that made them feel uncomfortable. End quote. Okay, now a necessary history lesson for the younger listeners and a refresher for all of us. In 1991, Judge Clarence Thomas was nominated by George H.W. Bush to become a justice on the Supreme Court to take Thurgood Marshall's seat when he retired. Cool. At the time, Delaware Senator Joe Biden chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee, and therefore Biden oversaw the confirmation process for Thomas. At the time, the committee was composed entirely of men. I mention that as context for what happened next. After the initial hearings were completed, and Thomas was on his way to a smooth confirmation, a confidential FBI interview with Anita Hill leaked to the press. In that interview, Hill said that Thomas had sexually harassed her in two different workplaces. Biden reopened the hearings and called on Hill to testify on the Senate floor. What followed was, in a word, awful. You had a woman testifying that a man who had been her boss had made a series of unwanted sexual approaches. Judge Thomas emphatically denied all of it. And there's one more detail to mention up front. Biden allowed Thomas to pick the order of testimony. Well, what did he pick? Thomas went both first and last. So Thomas set the stage, making his case against Hill first, and then Hill came in to give her testimony, and then she went away and Thomas testified again. So this became a he said, she said, he said some more situation. So then, a group of men basically went into attack mode against Anita Hill, asking all kinds of truly unsettling questions about sex and pornography and anatomy and what harassment even was, and holding up copies of The Exorcist and claiming Hill was a spurned woman who suffered from erotomania. And Biden did not stop them. And that's not all. Biden, as chair of the committee, could have called three other women who were already lined up to corroborate Hill's accusations but he did not. Hill even took a polygraph test after committee members accused her of lying in order to gain publicity. She passed the test. Then they claimed that she was mentally ill, and that's why she believed her own story to pass the test. And yes, this really happened. 
In the end, Justice Thomas was narrowly confirmed, although Biden did vote against his confirmation, both in the committee and on the Senate floor. The whole thing was a spectacle. It was all over TV and radio at the time, and I am old enough to remember that. I remember being shocked at the language that was being broadcast. It felt shattering somehow, maybe like it was the beginning of some kind of change. I mean, this was a moment where a woman stood up and reluctantly spoke about her experience being harassed by her boss. And remember, she didn't volunteer for this. Her name was leaked, and she was brought into the spotlight after that. And her testimony didn't matter in the end. At least it didn't matter in terms of Thomas's confirmation. But it did matter, it mattered a lot, to many of the people who watched. It was a moment that brought out issues of gender inequality and workplace harassment and sexual violence. And you name it, there's a lot of stuff tied up in those hearings. It was a defining moment in modern American history that still echoes today, and Joe Biden presided over the whole thing. Okay, history lesson complete. So on day one of Biden's campaign, the Anita Hill issue came up and became major news in the New York Times. And who saw that coming? Well, literally everyone. But here we are. So back to the Times coverage, reading from that story, a passage that begins with Hill's words, quote, I cannot be satisfied by simply saying, I'm sorry for what happened to you, said Ms. Hill, now a professor of social policy, law, and women's studies at Brandeis University. I will be satisfied when I know there is real change and real accountability and real purpose. Ms. Hill, a deeply private woman who does not often speak publicly about her experience, said she does not find Mr. Biden's conduct disqualifying. I'm really open to people changing, she said. But, she added, she cannot support Mr. Biden for president until he takes full responsibility for his conduct, including his failure to call as corroborating witnesses other women who were willing to testify before the Judiciary Committee. By leaving them out, she said, he created a he-said-she-said situation that did not have to exist. The focus on apology to me is one thing, Ms. Hill said. But he needs to give an apology to the other women and to the American public because we know now how deeply disappointed Americans around the country were about what they saw. And not just women. There are women and men now who have just really lost confidence in our government to respond to the problem of gender violence. End quote. Now, a little more on the history of what happened in the aftermath of the Thomas hearings. Like I said, Biden voted against confirming Thomas. And he also made a point of bringing a woman into the committee. In 1992, California Senator Dianne Feinstein joined the committee upon her election to the Senate. The idea was to bring some measure of diversity to that committee, which had previously been all male and had an average age of 60 during the Thomas hearings. By the way, as I mentioned yesterday, Feinstein has already endorsed Biden in his current campaign. And in 1994, Biden introduced the Violence Against Women Act as an effort to set up a legal framework in which women had legal recourse in cases of domestic violence and sexual assault. In a bipartisan vote, the bill passed Congress and became law later that year. Now, Biden to this day points to this bill when he talks about issues affecting women, although it is not clear that there is any direct line between Anita Hill and that bill. And although this segment is already getting quite long, uh, it turns out Joe Biden was already scheduled to appear on The View this morning before this whole controversy blew up yesterday. Although I wasn't able to watch the appearance live because of how time zones and broadcasting works, I did follow live commentary online, including direct quotes. 
In his appearance, Biden was asked, among other things, about his inappropriate physical contact with women. And again, he did not lead with an apology. Instead, he talked about how he needs to be more cognizant of personal space, and said that even when walking out onto the stage of The View just moments earlier, he had to think about whether it was appropriate for him to hug the hosts, even though they are his friends. The hosts pushed him on the issue, repeatedly, ultimately leading up to this exchange. Joy Behar, Nancy Pelosi wants you to say, I'm sorry I invaded your space. Joe Biden, I'm sorry I invaded your space, end quote. And then Biden started to add some more, saying, quote, it was inappropriate that I didn't understand, that I assumed, look, I was, anyway, end quote. So apparently he was going to say more there, but decided to move on since he'd already covered that ground and Behar had just gotten a direct apology out of him. And then the Anita Hill thing came up. All right, let me read from the New York Times live blog with co-authors Sidney Ember and Matt Flegenheimer. Now, because there are some embedded Biden quotes inside this larger New York Times quote, I'm going to add a few words into it for clarity. Okay, quote, Matt Flegenheimer. When asked about his treatment of Anita Hill when he was overseeing the Clarence Thomas hearings, Biden's answer gets at the frustration among many in the party with his semi-apology to Hill. He doesn't seem to think he should have or could have done anything all that differently. Quoting Biden, I did everything in my power to do what I thought was within the rules. End Biden quote. Sidney Ember. Here's the line that will get attention. Quoting Biden, I don't think I treated her badly. End Biden quote. Many might disagree. Biden did express regret throughout the exchange on Hill, but he didn't own his role in the hearings in the way some have hoped he would. A lot of what he said was in the passive voice, quoting Biden, I'm sorry she was treated the way she was treated, and there were a lot of mistakes that were made across the board, and for those I apologize. End Biden quote. Matt Flegenheimer. One observation, as Biden wades through some of the tougher subjects under gentle questioning, as ever, he projects a very unrehearsed vibe. That's part of the appeal, of course, but it can be pretty dicey to improvise on something like Anita Hill. A few times, he stumbled down rhetorical side streets before deciding to turn back around. This discussion ended with, quoting Biden, Some of you may remember, well, anyway, end Biden quote. And that was that. End quote and end story. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. 
Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, so let's rewind to Wednesday, a much simpler time when a bunch of primary candidates spoke at a notable event in Houston. Reading from the New York Times here, quote, Women of color are an increasingly powerful voting bloc and an essential part of any winning Democratic coalition, but presidential candidates rarely speak directly to them. Enter the She the People presidential forum hosted in Houston on Wednesday by the political group She the People. Eight of the 19 Democratic candidates spoke at the event, which was billed as the first presidential forum for women of color and drew an audience of more than 1,000 people. The topics ranged from voting rights to health care, and the questions came exclusively from women of color, who make up about one-fifth of the primary electorate and more in some key states, said Amy Allison, the group's founder and president. The broad thing I was hoping to do was to get a sense for the competency and comfort that each candidate had talking about racial, gender, and economic justice, Ms. Allison said in an interview after the event. Are they even comfortable talking about it, and can they engender trust? End quote. So the candidates who showed up were Cory Booker, Julian Castro, Tulsi Gabbard, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. According to the Times, Warren was the standout candidate, even receiving a standing ovation for one of her responses to a question. After the event, the Times spoke to attendees who praised, quote, the specificity and thoroughness of Ms. Warren's answers, end quote. Organizer Amy Allison also cited Castro's performance as notably strong. Reading from the Times, quote, Ms. Allison praised Mr. Castro, too, for the specificity of his remarks. Mr. Castro, who began by pointing out to laughter that the organizers had mistakenly used a photo of his twin brother, Representative Joaquin Castro, in the program, called for property tax relief and more affordable housing to protect people of color in gentrifying neighborhoods. He also discussed universal pre-kindergarten, a major element of his platform, end quote. Okay, hold up, <laughs> trivia time. It was news to me that Julian Castro had a twin brother in the first place, and Joaquin Castro currently serves in the House representing Texas's 20th district. Now, I really want to see a Castro family cookout now. Like, is it going to be all policy talk or what? Anyway, back to Wednesday. Kamala Harris, who is herself a woman of color, spoke up. From the Times, quote, Several candidates were asked about criminal justice and the so-called war on drugs, which has disproportionately affected people of color. Ms. Harris, a former prosecutor, focused on this issue in particular, calling for the legalization of marijuana and saying laws against it had contributed to the problem of mass incarceration in our country and led disproportionately to the criminalization of young black and brown men in this country, end quote. And Cory Booker also had his moment, again from the Times, quote, Mr. Booker, who is the first candidate to speak, received his biggest applause for noting that climate change is already disproportionately affecting poor communities and people of color. He also denounced President Trump's attacks toward Representative Ilhan Omar, one of the first Muslim women in Congress who has reported an increase in death threats since Mr. Trump began targeting her, end quote. And one more notable bit from the Times piece that wraps right back around to Warren, quote, as the last segment, Ms. Warren's, wrapped up, the moderators brought up something of an elephant in the 2020 room. The sense among some Democrats after the experience of 2016 that Americans aren't ready to elect a woman. And then they quote Warren here. We've got a room full of people here who weren't given anything. We have a room full of people here who had to fight for what they believe in, Ms. Warren responded. Are we going to show up for people that we didn't actually believe in because we were too afraid to do anything else? That's not who we are. That's not how we're going to do this. 
End quote. And finally today, I want to highlight one more candidate who's been running way under the radar, and that's because she's not running yet. But there's a good chance that she will be. Stacey Abrams, who narrowly lost the race for governor of Georgia in 2018, is a rising star in the Democratic Party. In February, she gave the response to Trump's State of the Union address, and in doing so, became the first black woman in history to give such a response. Abrams is no stranger to being the first black woman to do a lot of things. Being a black woman running as a major party's candidate for governor of a U.S. state was a first. The election was close, and even though she didn't win, she definitely proved her viability as a candidate. Her previous work in the Georgia General Assembly demonstrated that Abrams can also work in a bipartisan manner to actually get stuff done. She managed to pass Georgia's largest public transportation funding effort, and that was done with significant support from Republicans. She has also worked on tax reform issues and was key in defeating major tax increases that were initially supported by Republicans, at least until they saw the math that she had done. So the speculation ever since that gubernatorial defeat was whether Abrams would run for something else. Obvious choices could be, you know, president or maybe Senate. She has said she might run against Republican Senator David Perdue, who is currently serving his first term for Georgia, but there is no firm commitment there yet. Politico reports that Abrams has been quietly meeting with every major presidential primary candidate, plus key figures in Democratic Party leadership, and has been active in fundraising for the party. I want to read from a Politico article here from late March. Quote, Abrams, who maintains a spreadsheet of her life ambitions, has stoked the buzz surrounding her next move by taking meetings with national figures, from Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer to former Vice President Joe Biden. Abrams is well aware of the intrigue and knows that even amid the early jostling among Democratic presidential candidates, there is a spotlight on her. She is taking advantage of the interest to expand her network and make new connections that will help her regardless of her next steps, according to allies and advisors, end quote. Abrams has publicly said that she may wait until the fall of this year before making a firm decision on either a Senate or presidential run. While that may seem late, it's a strategy that could work in her favor. If the field has winnowed by that point, Abrams could enter it as a credible, well-liked, fresh face in a field that will have been going at it for months at that point. While she might end up as someone's vice president, that's not a bad place to be. And neither is the Senate. That's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. You know, we're only a few weeks into this show, and now every episode reaches thousands of listeners. I did not expect that to happen so soon, and I want to take a moment to say thank you, sincerely. It is an honor to be part of your daily routine, and I don't take it lightly. Your words of support and your critiques are both valuable to me. I appreciate them, and I appreciate you. And I would also truly love it if you could tell a friend about the show. The best way for us to grow is through word of mouth. And if you're an iTunes user, an honest review and a rating helps too. So thank you, have a lovely weekend, and I will talk to you all on Monday. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.